1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the new books network. I mean, you can hear me.
1: Yes. Yes, I can hear you. All right. Yes, I'll edit this out. Um, I'm just hoping that this is recorded somewhere. Um, so oh, I'm gonna well, do a...
0: while while we're uh, getting ready, uh, tell me about what you've been doing. I already know what I do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you're a busy guy. <laughs> yes, I am. I am. But it's it has been the, the, it's been more my personal life that has been um, dominating things. I haven't been, you know, really really that that productive lately. Um I, well, I, I get thirty
0: I get thirty-eight articles on economic history from you every week.
1: <laughs> well, yes, but that um, That's good by the way. Yes, yes, but 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 it's but it's uh, but but it's uh, um it's like riding a bicycle in a way. <laughs> you know. Okay. Now we're we're in business. Okay, let, let me give it three Three seconds for a pause. I'm gonna edit this out. Hello and welcome to New Books Network in History. This is Bernardo Batis Lasso, and today we have the pleasure of having James W. Cortada as our guest talking about his latest book, which is um, IBM: The Rise and Fall and Reinvention of a Gold Hang Icon. Jim. Thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Um, Jim, you have been able to combine your work as a historian with your work at IBM. So would you please tell the audience a little bit about that and how you, yes, how you, you progressed and how, how they, the, you, you became and moved from one area to the other. Well, you never left one.
0: Yes, when I joined uh, IBM in 1974, I had a PhD in uh, European history. Hmm. And I made a decision that I would not give up my love of history uh, after joining IBM, and that I would continue to do research and writing on history, uh, like a hobby. Some people paint, some people are in sports, I decided I would do history. So but at the same time, I followed the advice that my father gave me, which was commit myself completely to the development of my business career at IBM. Right. Do, do not compromise that, uh, buy into the culture, uh, embrace its values, as, uh, embrace the, uh, the aspirations of, of people who want to be successful in the company. And I did that. And, uh, I spent 38 years at IBM, uh, most of it in sales and sales management and executive management and in consulting. I had a wonderful career at IBM, the way an IBM employee would understand it. But at the same time, I had this hobby. About four years uh, into IBM, around 1978, I realized that nobody was writing on the history of computing. I mean, there was one or two scholarly books a year, and they were on technology, and about every three or four years, somebody would, uh, some engineer would attempt to write some history. But I was a professionally trained historian, and I kept writing on European history. And I said, you know, there's no competition here. I should begin to write on the history of computing and its industry. So I began to gather materials, I began to study things, And then I discovered that IBM had a wonderful archive, that there was another archive at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, another one at the University of Minnesota and the National Archives in Washington, DC. And I said, wow, nobody's here, no competition. So I began to collect materials on the history of the industry and became very familiar with IBM's archives. And every time I was in the New York area where the archives were at the time, I would make time to spend you know, two or three hours uh, there, pick up materials and, and collect. And so over the years that accumulated, I wrote a number of history books uh, on the industry. I also wrote some uh, management books because I discovered that business management writers were terrible. But uh, people who are trained in history and the humanities are taught to write, so I had less competition there for quality. So I wrote on those subjects, and I just kept doing this, much like playing tennis. And you know, if you do it for forty years, you accumulate publications. So that's what happened. It's very (laughs) simple.
1: Interesting. And and how then? How did you? approached or make an acquaintance of Alfred Chandler because you, you work with him and, and I don't know to what extent you kind of alerted because alerted him to the computer industry, because there is a, not a change, but, you know, it's one of the things that kind of appears at the late stages of his writing. And, and one of the first steps that he does there, those that with, with you at least. Yeah. So what happened
0: was uh, in 1978, This is an important date. I came across his book, The Visible Hand. I did not know Al Chandler. I did not know that he had won the the Pulitzer Prize for that book. I did not know that he was the God of all business historians. All I knew is this guy was up at Harvard and had written what I thought was a really good business management book. Remember, this is when I was just beginning to study business uh, history. Up to this point, I knew about Franco. I knew about uh, the UN and everything else, but not about. So he was just another guy. And I read his book, and I really liked it, but I had some questions. I said, let me give him a call and see if he'll answer my question. So I called his office, and he was in. I introduced myself. He probably thought, well, who is this guy? And uh, got to talking he was he was and then he started asking me questions uh, so he found out I had a PhD in history that I was a sales manager at IBM which so that's you know contradictory right there uh, that I had published a bunch of stuff and uh, that I was interested in business history and and I asked obviously questions that were intriguing to him. Well that started a relationship one thing led to another and at the At the end of the 1990s, I had decided by this point, I had written a number of books uh, on business history. And I approached them and said, you know, a big open question here is we don't understand how information is flowing through American history, particularly in business. And I'd like to write a book on it, but I don't know enough to do it. Uh, Why don't you and I collaborate in uh, getting all the experts at that time to contribute chapters. He said, well, you can do that. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. They don't know me, but if you invite them to participate, they will, and I'll do all the grunt work, mm-hmm. all, all the you know, back office work and everything else. So he agreed to that. He loved the topic. It took me 15 minutes only to sell it to Oxford University Press. It was my publisher at the time. Only 15 yeah. minutes. And so the book was a success, and then I went to him for advice on my next books, and he and I started having conversations about computers and the computer industry and how it affected all of American management and structures and so on. So I think I like to think that I changed him a little bit, but he also helped me enormously right up to the time that he died in the early 2000s. Now, what was really funny was when, we, when uh, I published my first really big, uh, important book on uh, history of computing, which was before the computer, uh, with Princeton University Press, <clears throat> up to that point, uh, he had never endorsed anybody else's book. My editor sent uh, the page proofs over to him to look at, and he said he'd be delighted to endorse the book. When he endorsed the book, on the, you know, on the back of the jacket says, you know, this is a good book, beat it to everybody, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, everybody looked around and said, who is Cortada? Yeah. I, Chandler won't endorse my book, but he'll endorse Cortada. Who's this guy? I started getting phone calls. <laughs> so he made me. Yeah. As they say, you know, in the mafia, he made me. me. <laughs>
1: yeah. So That's Al Chandler. I love the man. Excellent. Um, excellent. Well, that was a, a super anecdote. Thank you very much uh, because it always intrigued me how 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 that worked. But coming back to to the book, I mean, obviously as as or or as you have um, advanced, it was something that you never really left, and and um, clearly the um, you know your your list of publications made made a uh, um, Uh, a record of that but how was it that you came to the idea of writing a book on on ibm knowing that that would probably close the doors for you with other ibmers until they retired
0: i knew probably 25 years ago that someday i would probably write a history of ibm i read everything that came out on ibm including uh, all those wonderful technology histories by Emerson Pugh, we became friends over the years. And uh, in 1995, he published his history of IBM. I knew Bob Sobel, uh, who was a professional historian. He had written, uh, published a history of IBM in 1981. And as the years went by, uh, I knew that uh, IBM needed a fresh history. And it's just a question, you know, because time passes, right? <clears throat> also, over the years, I had read a great deal of business history. And uh, very few people had touched IBM who were professional historians. So there were a lot of issues that were not being discussed, you know, by technology historians and so on about IBM. And as I stayed at IBM, I realized that nobody understood the company well enough who was outside of it because of its strong culture. They were missing it. They they got close, but they didn't quite get it right, you know? Uh, So I knew I was gonna eventually write a history of the company. Uh, It was just inevitable. And people will start asking me, well, you know, Cortana, when are you gonna write your history? I said, well, I can't write it while I'm an employee. You know, that's inappropriate. You know, no bueno, as they say, right? so, but I began to collect materials with the permission of the archivist. Mm-hmm. So I went through three archivists over the years, gathering materials, some of which I used in other books and some of which I set aside for someday writing this, this book. And I kept buying whatever came out, you know, and if I saw newspaper articles or magazine articles, I collected. So I built quite a file. So then I retired in, at the end of 2012. And uh, working at IBM is very pressure-filled. So I needed about a year to sort of get some distance. You know, uh, after you were a university student, that first year afterwards, you said, wow, what just happened to me, right? And right. well, I, I, I just went through that. I, I felt like I had just graduated from uh, IBM University, and it taught me a great deal about life and business and history. But after a year, I began to think, well, maybe now is the time to start work on on such a book. So I began to, you know, do the usual things of uh, building the outlines, figuring out what I was missing, having conversations with people. And then I said, okay, I am now going to write this book. And I decided the audience would be academic on the one hand, but all my IBM colleagues on the other. So the writing style had to be more popular, trade-like, but it had to have the rigor, academic rigor. And IBM lawyers taught me long time ago, never write anything that you cannot prove in a court of law mm-hmm. or bring your evidence. So that was my standard for the scholarship, was court of law, you know, legal standards, not academic standards, which are, the legal standards are actually more rigorous. Yeah, and uh, even when I finished writing it, uh, I, I took the last two chapters, which dealt with con- contemporary IBM, and I showed it to uh, a business lawyer who was not in IBM, but just outside of IBM. And I said, "Can IBM sue me for this? Yeah. <laughs> Take me to jail?" And he came back and said, "Nope, it's you're rock solid." Yeah, yeah. All your sources are publicly available. You just pulled it all together. So what I did was I wrote a history that told the the normal story that you would in a business history book about uh, governance, products, markets, uh, lots of interesting details about senior executives, many of whom I had met over the years. uh, So I could describe their personalities, you know, that sort of thing that you can't get out of. The New York Times, right? Yeah. And I knew what to emphasize and what not to emphasize over the years. And I said it within the context of how business history is right today. I also spent more time describing IBM's culture because everybody who has ever worked at IBM will tell you two things. The people were fantastic and the culture just made the business more successful than unsuccessful over the course of 130 years. So it's very important that I get those two two pieces woven in, and only I, as an IBM employee, understood how to explain that at the time. None of the prior literature did that. The one thing I decided not to do was to spend too much time on uh, all the technological innovations, because I thought Emerson Pugh had done that, and out of
1: respect for him, I said, "We'll leave." That's- but, but nevertheless, it's 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 well, as you've said that that is one of the core issues of or core ideas in the book, which is how to portray this this organizational culture that it's growing and, and it's evolving and it has to, as you say in the title, to withstand not only success but an apparent you know almost collapse. And then oh yeah, to, uh, as
0: they say in Spanish, golpe see.
1: And, and, yeah. and, and having to resuscitate, all no, not resuscitate because it didn't totally collapse, but, but being able to to survive yeah. this, 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 this huge process of, of change. You know? Yeah,
0: and, very difficult and- to do. It's not easy because remember, uh, after World War II, the company was formed in the 1880s, but after World War II, it always had over a hundred thousand employees and by the end of the 1980s, it had 400,000 employees, and it was in over 150 countries. Very complicated organization. Yes, and a
1: very complicated, sorry to, 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 to jump in here. Yeah. Uh, also a very uh, complicated book to, to write because just, just for the sake of, of being uh, transparent, well, not transparent, but, but clear, you know, it has. Um, it's a very big book. It's a 700-pages book. I'm uh, sorry. Not, not <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> <It's>, big company. <laughs> it, exactly. It's a big company, and then it's a very long period of time, from 1880 until 2012. And, and you split this into four big section, sections, which is the origins, uh, the market dominance be, between 1945 and 85. The crisis between eighty-five and ninety-four, and then the renewal between ninety-five and and two thousand and twelve, uh, and that is certainly from um, business history perspective, or something that should appeal to colleagues in in organizational studies, is how you are able to interweave all of these moving parts and then tell this story of of the organizational culture and how it's cre- being created, evolving and how it's withstanding that. Um, but at the same time, you also bring, I think, um, the, the view from, from the inside and, and a critique that I've found in other with other uh, former IBMers, which is this, this aspiration with senior management or senior managers in the 1980s and, and kind of you know when when the companies um, you know, this going into crisis and and people having different views as to what should be the way forward, no?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's a a company that usually allowed a great deal of debate Mm -hmm. about what to do. And it also is a company that has always had specific ways of communicating different ideas in a formal manner. And it's always had that right from the beginning. Uh, so that, that was very helpful. The company also, I know this is going to stra- sound strange to your listeners, but I don't think I ever met a stupid IBMer, IBM employee. Now, years later, I found out why. It's the selection process. You begin, everybody takes an intelligence test. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's take an intelligence yeah. test. And if it says you're stupid, the interviews yeah. don't go on, you know? Yeah. So you bring in all these very smart people, you train them extensively for their entire careers on management, on organizational structures, on the technology, on how to communicate, how to think, you know, all these things repeatedly, and you give them freedom to carry out their responsibilities now, what that does is it, takes, it allows a very intelligent person to articulate their points of view. You hold them accountable for their successes. And, uh, and, of course, you have debates, you know, and like debates, you yell at each other and you get mad and you have differences of points of view and so on. But the ideas surface. Once an idea has been agreed upon, then implementation of it goes very quick. In any period, because part of all the debates about what to do, even in the periods of crisis, also involve things like, well, if I were going to run this company, here are the five things I would do, and here are the four people I would have working on. So there was a plan, always a plan, you know. So once an idea was accepted, the plan that came with it was also accepted. And then people were very disciplined, and they immediately implemented it in general, right? Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's important to get the, uh, the whole idea together. And, and that, that is a way to cause problems on the one hand, but on the other hand, once you have a solution for getting out of a problem, you've got
1: a path. But isn't, isn't it, again, and I might be stereotyping, isn't it that very much the way that engineers work? Yes, Wait. you know it's it's very it's it's very scientific.
0: Yes, very scientific, very engineering, very very, uh, very engineering. political too. But here here's the thing that I thought made IBM very lucky. IBM before 1911 was three or four, depending on how you want to measure it, little companies that didn't collaborate with each other, mm-hmm. um, and they were okay. You know. It was, Nothing exciting. The guy who was running it put it together mainly to sell stock. But he realized there was potential here for data processing, which is what they called it in those days. So he needed a professional manager. So he, went to, he hired a fellow by the name of Thomas Watson, who at the time was a 42-year-old, highly successful senior executive who had worked at NCR, which was another major competitor. So he brought this man in. Now, the thing about it is that he he grew up in the IBM of the nineteenth century, that is NCR, well-run company by one of the one of the best uh, senior executives in the United States, and, and a very honest man and straightforward, and uh, so he wouldn't know like Rockefeller or some of these other other people. So the, this Watson was trained by this guy. So he came to work in 1914 at IBM. It wasn't even called IBM at the time. It was called CTR. Uh, And when he came in at the age of 42, think about a man of 42 years old, already has a business philosophy, has experience in sales, knows what he likes and doesn't like about measurements, knows the kind of people he likes to have around him. In other words, he brought NCR's mature culture, which had been developed over a 30, 40-year period in one of the best run companies in the United States. He brought it into what became IBM and immediately implemented it, right down to the same language, the same procedures and everything else. Then he ran the company for 45 years. So over the 45 year period, what he brought into the company was put into cement. Because you were now, you now had a third, when he died in 1956, you had a third generation that knew only his way to do things. And at the time he was considered uh, perhaps the number one executive in the United States for effectiveness, morality, all those things. It's that 45 years of constancy of purpose, right? To use a phrase that his friend Peter Drucker used. All right, his son takes over the business in 1956. He completely uh, embraces his father's uh, way of doing business because he too grew up in the company and he stayed until 1971. And in his period of time, he was able to uh, make the company very, very large, all over the world, and to implement the original philosophy, the original way of doing things. And so, You get this IBM culture, you get this engineering view also. Uh, I I like your phrase, Uh, but also it's a, it's a sales culture uh, in that every problem can be solved. Opportunity is everywhere. Let's go get it. You know, that kind of a mindset. And so that sustained the company and it has really uh, two uh, a greater than lesser extent to the present. A a lot of superficial things on the outside that people complain about uh, disappeared, you know, uh, and and the one major thing that disappeared uh, uh, certainly by the end of the century was that uh, Watson Senior never liked to fire people. He wanted to hire you to come in and stay for life, Mm -hmm. but you have to give your body and soul to the company in exchange, you know? Like you become a priest, you're a priest 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of your life. It's that kind of, but you'll never go hungry, you know, and you'll be properly prayed. Well, that piece of the culture went away at the end of the 20th century, as it did for many other corporations, and that created all kinds of changes at IBM. But there was enough of this core about ideas, about smart people, about how to implement things. That has continued to the present, even with the introduction of many tens of thousands of new employees that were professionally hired into the company
1: and, 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 and in that sense or moving moving from from the organizational culture, which is which is a very you know, um, as I said is one of the main things that, that stand out what do you think that the general public will will find interesting in reading the book or reading parts of the book.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned parts because I designed the book so that you do not have to read the whole thing. In fact, in the preface, I tell you, if you're uh, an employee, here's what you ought to read right now and then go back and read the rest. If you are a retired uh, employee or retired customer of IBM, read these chapters first, then read the rest. And if you're a historian, I'm sorry, you have to start on page one, right? So um, what the, uh, the way to answer your question is uh, how did retired IBM employees read the book and react? That may be the honest test that I have. Uh, I've heard now from uh, well over 200 retired IBM employees. Some of them have been retired for 30 years you know, in their 90s. So you know. um, what they liked was the what they call it's an easy read. It was not academic language. Uh, I, I wrote it almost the way I'm talking to you now, not with a lot of fancy vocabulary. And when I introduced a business term, I defined it as it was known at that time. So within a historical perspective. Uh, and I, I made sure that, that I didn't spend too much time in, in extreme detail. I spend more time giving you a quick overview of something, and then explaining why that was, and what, and then toward the end of the book, the implications for other companies and other employees. Now I'm writing a sequel, right. which is more on the culture of the company. That will be more for the public. Uh, well, anybody who isn't. Uh, interested in, in computer technology and so on. because I, I find that rather boring. And the reason why is because when I was a salesman, uh, I had to explain to non-technical management why they should spend a million dollars on an IBM computer. Okay. And going in and telling them feeds and speeds and what DASD does and CPUs and all that. They don't want to hear that. They want to know how many answers am I going to get out of this machine every month? Right. You know? So, that taught me how to write this book, Yeah, Yeah. you know, uh, as as the old expression goes, my mother would like it, you know, it's uh, somebody who knows nothing about computers, somebody who doesn't know how large corporations run, I, I write it for them, and in fact, sales of the book have been to that audience more than to, to scholars you know, all the usual libraries bought copies and, and so on. But uh, it's one of the arguments I make in the book is that IBM was an example of a large international company.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: it was unique. Yes, it was very successful. But if you read the history of IBM, you get to understand Kodak, Philips, you know, all these great companies because they were all part of a of a common culture and had common issues, such as how do you how do you run your company in 150 countries where everybody speaks a different language? Well, you make sure they all also understand English. Or in Philips, they want you to understand Dutch. You know, so uh, you you've got common issues that they all face. So when you read the book, you get exposed to Citicorp and. Phillips and all these other companies uh, in a similar way. And I wanted that also for the historians who, if they go write a a good history of General Motors, we don't have a good history of General Motors, uh, they would know what issues to to discuss. And if they wrote it in a friendly uh, style, there are hundreds of thousands of retired General Motors employees who run out and buy it or should buy it.
1: Or should buy it, yes. But but um, okay, not but you've you've talked about collecting material throughout throughout um, a very long period of time, making use of that material, making use of your own mm-hmm. insights. Were you tempted at some point of using or you know interviews, or oral histories, talking to other people, to other former employees, and not only passing them chapters, but actually systematically? collecting their views and and adding to to your voice. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, uh, I did, even while I was at IBM. Mm -hmm. Uh, On occasion, I would talk to uh, people who I thought were pivotal and I would would tell them why. I want to make a record of this in case I should ever write a history of IBM. And I would also ask their permission at that time. and this, was, this turned out to be important. I didn't do a lot of these. I think you know, while I was at IBM, I may have talked to this way, maybe to eight or 10 people, who I knew would be important to me later on if I wanted to use the material. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking, for example, of a gentleman who worked for Watson Senior, uh, as an executive assistant uh, late in Watson Sr.'s career in the 1950s, who I met in the 1980s. He had been retired for many years. Very old school IBM, you know, a thin man with white hair, dark blue suit, starch white shirt. I mean, this was, is was the way he was dressed when he was retired. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Talk about IBM culture. Yeah. And, uh, we spent, I don't know, uh, over the course of two, three days, uh, maybe six hours talking about what IBM was like. And he had joined IBM in the 1930s. Right. So he exposed me to IBM in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then I think he retired know, around 1960 or something. <coughs> so there were a number of these individuals. And then, of course, uh, after, after uh, I retired, I talked to some other people. However, even in the years that I was at IBM, I sometimes would be in uh, meetings where something historically important took place. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, write notes of those meetings uh, as was my habit in any meeting, I took notes, much like a university student with those mm-hmm. little spiral binders, you know? And I have all of those from 1974 to the present. Uh, I use them at work as work. You know, so if you call me up and said, "Hey Jim, what did we agree to last Wednesday?" and I open up my little notebook and I said, "We agreed to three things." He said, "Oh yeah, I, I forgot the third one. Thank you." Uh, but if it was historical, uh, historically significant, I would draw a little star. And that might only happen once a year, you know. But I would know that if I ever were to write a history of IBM, I might want to go to that notebook, that page, and I bent the page over so I didn't have to, you know, keep turning Flip all the pages. Paper, uh,
1: yeah.
0: uh, and then, of course, I interviewed some people formally after
1: I left IBM. Right. I don't well, know whether that you, answers you your question, but that's how I did it. It is no, it it is it it does and it uh, and it shows in the in in, in the in the narrative, well, in the in the story that that uh, that you tell. And I was just gonna comment that having benefited from some of the documents and collections that you have donated to the Charles Papagen Institute, I know that you're super organized and that (laughs) will be a a resource for future scholars who want to look into this if you do donate them as as, Actually,
0: my wife said I had to get rid of it all. It was rubbish. (laughs) so, Um,
1: uh,
0: Yeah, thank you for the compliment. Yeah. Now, I should add one other thing, and that is, uh, I followed, after I left IBM, I followed some guidelines that we had always followed in IBM with regard to information. Let me explain. I was never going to reveal anything that was marked IBM confidential. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was never going to reveal anything that would immediately help a competitor. So I know things that are, that are going on in IBM today, I will never, I won't tell people about it until my competitor is gone and dead and whatever. Uh, and I never uh, exposed any uh, uh, information that belonged to a customer of IBM. And even in this book, you know, I followed those three rules. Those are the three rules we all live by at, at IBM with respect to sharing of information, especially outside of the enterprise. And I thought those were very good rules to go by, and it did not hurt the book at all. Well, really, really, good. Thank you very much.
1: Well, Jim Jim Cortada, you've you've always told, told us about or that you're working in a second second volume or a second version of this for for a wider audience. And uh, what we, I want to thank you for for giving us the time today, when we look forward to reading your next book uh, as thoroughly as we've done this one. Um, And just this, therefore, is left for me to um, thank our listeners for being with us today and not forget to subscribe to future uh, chapters of installments of the new book, uh, Networking History. Jim Cortada, again, thank you very much. Thank you.